The reading today is from the book of Job, chapter 1, verses 6 through 12, and you can find it on page 417 in the Blue Pew Bibles. Job 1, 6 through 12. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand, and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. This is the word of God. Have a seat. Before we come to this passage, would you join me in prayer one more time? Father in heaven, um, as Dan just said, we have have prayed uh, at every part of this worship service. We keep um, coming back and and addressing you, but at every moment we recognize that it's really you who have addressed us first. Uh, You have called us uh, into your presence. Um, You have uh, elicited uh, our, our praise and our thanksgiving. Um, we have confessed sin, but your word reminds us that it's your kindness that moves us towards repentance. And so it was, it was with the eager anticipation, the, the full expectation of hearing the assurance of forgiveness um, that we were able to be honest with you um, and to confess uh, our, our sins to you. Um, we give as a response to your generosity. Uh, and now as we come before your word, Um, we know that we come before a God who has moved first, that you have um, bowed down low to reveal yourself uh, to us, that you have sent your Son uh, into the world, that you have revealed yourself in the person of Jesus, Um, and that Jesus, having risen from the dead and risen again, ascended into heaven, uh, made good on his promise to send the Holy Spirit. Uh, and, And Spirit, it's your presence among us now that Um, we completely depend on this. Uh, We depend uh, on you having made this promise that we live in um, and move in and have our being in, Um, that when we gather together in your name, when we open your word, uh, when we listen, um, that you're present among us uh, and that your word doesn't go out from you without accomplishing its its purpose. So, Lord, that's our prayer. Uh, Our prayer is that your word would accomplish your purposes uh, among us, not mine, um, not the elders, um, not the purposes of any person sitting in this room. All of us um, need to be turned towards you. All of us need to be course-corrected in one way or another. Um, All of us need to be drawn um, into the presence of our our loving Father to feel your delight uh, in us. 
Father, to, to be convicted of the ways that we have turned away from you uh, and, and turned against you. Um, Father, to be reminded again and again of your grace, um, your steadfast love and your faithfulness um, towards your people. Um, Father, we, we come into your presence every week um, with many cares, um, with, with many anxieties. Uh, for the last year and a half, we have held in common the cares and anxieties that are attached to this pandemic, and we continue to pray, please bring an end to it, a full end uh, to, this, to this pandemic. Um, please end the suffering um, of those in our state and our nation and around the world. Um, Lord, we know that, that individually we have many other things that we're concerned with, that, that pressures and stresses at work, uh, in our families, um, in our schools, um, in our neighborhoods. Um, these things press hard. Um, they, are, they are not small things. Um, and Father, in some ways they are, um, we can say that even with more confidence and assurance, that they are not small in your eyes. Um, that because of your love for us, uh, you care for us. You want us to put these things in front of you. Um, Father, we're grateful for the, the times during the week um, when we can do that together, and we're grateful for this time now. Um, for this moment, Father, we, we ask um, that you would um, uh, gather all these things together and show yourself again uh, to be our faithful uh, and, and loving Father as you speak to us uh, through this book of Job. Um, we give thanks to you. Uh, for all that you've given us. And Father, I pray uh, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, I know that Psalm 62 has been extremely important uh, in the life of this church, um, so much as, as to be called the CTK Psalm. Uh, at, at times. Um, it's been important in my life too, and, and probably for the same reason um, that, uh, that, that it's been important in, in the life of this church. I remember first encountering the last two verses of Psalm 62, really encountering them, um, in a prayer meeting with Bradley years and years ago, early 2000s, back in Cambridge. Um, and I remember, you know, for the first time looking at these verses that come at the end of this psalm, where the psalmist writes, Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. And, and I remember meditating for the first time on how so many of our problems as people come from our failure to believe one or both of those things, right? That we, we struggle to believe that God is powerful, that he can help us, that he can save us. We struggle to believe that he's loving, that he will save us. Um, it is the deepest desire of the devil to knock those beliefs ajar uh, in our hearts, to knock us away uh, from them. And in this passage here at the beginning of the book of Job, um, what we're seeing is that our struggle uh, to believe those things is a struggle of literally cosmic proportions. Um, that there is a reality behind our own, there is a reality in heaven, um, a struggle uh, for your heart, for my heart, 
um, over belief in these two things. This text, um, as we look at it, is going to challenge exactly those two things. There are going to be two challenges raised to us as we look at these verses. Um, one is to believe that God is there, that he is powerful, that there is a God in heaven, that there is someone in control, someone sovereign over all of the changes and chances uh, of our lives that weary us. But then the other challenge, and maybe the more significant one, is to believe that if there is a God, that he cares about us, uh, that he is a God of love, um, that he is a God who uh, cares about those changes and chances uh, and is acting to save um, in, in the world. Um, last week, Bradley spoke about the cinematic quality of the book of Job, um, and I think that, that kind of continues right now as, as, we, as we move to verse 6. You know, suddenly, for the first five verses, we were focused on this man. Right, we were focused on this man. I love how the book begins. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. That's a great beginning. Um, we hear about this man. We hear, uh, as Bradley preached last week, about this man's excellence as a human being, not just his wealth, uh, but his faithfulness, his, his uprightness, his blamelessness, his, um, his, his constant habit of interceding for other people. Um, and now suddenly the scene shifts. It's like it zooms way out, um, you know, from this, you know, small scene of, of one person uh, with his family, and now we're in heaven. We're in the throne room. It says, now there was a day, and that phrase, now there was a day, is going to kind of move the plot forward over these next uh, couple of chapters. Um, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. These sons of God, you know, it stands to reason. These are the same ones when we get to the end of the book. And God brings that question to Job. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And the morning stars sang for joy and all the sons of God rejoiced. Um, it stands to reason these are the same beings. The same celestial beings of, of, of some kind who were there in the beginning, and now they're presenting themselves um, before, before God. Um, it reminds me a little bit, um, a lot of you uh, have probably read uh, The Lord of the Rings. Of course, if you're really a Tolkien fan, you go beyond The Lord of the Rings, right? You go to the Silmarillion, right? You go back even further, like it zooms out uh, to tell the whole story. And it tells the story of the very beginning, right? And you remember the creation scene for the Silmarillion, the creation scene for, the, for Tolkien, for the Lord of the Rings? It's a story of music. It's a story of these um, celestial beings singing creation into existence. And the song is beautiful and harmonious until there's this one celestial being. His name is Melkor. It's always got to be a name like that, Melkor. Um, who has other ideas and tries to sing discord uh, into, uh, in, in, into creation. And there's this great line where it talks about his, his you know, off-tune, off-key discord. It says, it essayed to drown the other music by the violence of its voice, but it seemed that its most triumphant notes were taken by the others and woven into its own solemn pattern, somehow woven into creation. Well, here we don't have Melkor, um, but we have Satan. 
Um, the word Satan there, it actually, in the Hebrew, um, says the Satan. Um, and when used like that, it's, it's almost more of a title. What it means is the adversary. It means the challenger. It means the accuser. Um, this is probably the same being that we'll read of later in the New Testament who tempts Jesus um, in, the, in the wilderness. It's probably the same being that we'll read about in the book of Revelation. Um, but in terms of just the book of Job, all we know is someone is there to issue a challenge. Someone is coming in as an adversary. Someone opposed uh, to God uh, and, and, to his, and to his plans. The one thing that we know about him is, of course, that he is one of these celestial beings, which means he has access to the throne room of God. He has, he's able to walk into God's presence, which is something that Job himself um, is not going to be able to do, much as he would want to uh, later in the book. Um, he shows up only in these first two chapters of the book, and so it's easy to think of him as, as kind of a minor character to the thing as a whole, except that, of course, what he sets in motion, what he catalyzes, um, is the plot, is, is the plot of the whole, the whole book of, of Job, um, as he raises this challenge uh, to God. Um, now, as I said, the, the challenge that he raises, I think, comes at us in two different ways. Um, on the one hand, there's what you might call the modern challenge, Right, and the modern challenge is to believe, like, is this even real? Is this scene even happening? You know, is there actually a God in heaven? Is there actually a heavenly reality behind ours? Is there anyone in control of everything? Um, but then the other challenge, the more important one, uh, is going to be the more substantive challenge that Satan himself is raising to God's character. Um, challenging us as to whether or not God is actually loving, uh, whether he is faithful, whether he is, in fact, a good God, not just a powerful one, but a good one. Um, this first challenge, as I say, is, is the, more, the more modern one, right? Modern people look at this, at this scene, um, you know, and, and think, come on, like this, this of everything in the book feels the most mythological, uh, the most like a fable. The rest of it um, you know, the rest of the book of Job is something that we can readily identify with. Um, it's down to earth. It's about human suffering. Um, but this scene, we wonder, is this real? Is this, is this actually happening? Um, there's been a few modern adaptations of the book of Job. The book of Job has been recognized as being one of the greatest works of literature uh, ever. And so unsurprisingly, some of the greatest literary minds have taken their crack at retelling the story. So you've got, uh, you've got versions from, from Dostoevsky. You've got the playwright Neil Simon. Um, more recently, there's a couple of films, um, very different from each other, but both very good. The, the Coen brothers um, did a movie called A Serious Man, um, about a man whose life kind of falls apart gradually, gradually. Um, and then on the other hand, Terrence Malick, um, also a great filmmaker, uh, produced The Tree of Life. Very different from each other. One thing that those two movies have in common, though, there's nothing in either of them like this. They both present you know, some sort of spiritual reality 
but there's nothing like this scene. There's nothing like this conversation. That doesn't make it into a modern retelling of the story of the book of Job. We struggle to believe uh, that, this, that, this is, that this is real. Because we live in a world, as the philosopher Charles Taylor has put it, he, he says we live in a secular age, right? Um, we live in a world where we have effectively bracketed out everything from reality that we can't see, that we can't observe, that we can't measure. Um, he refers to this as the imminent frame, this bracketing. We live within the imminent frame. When I read A Secular Age, one thing that I realized uh, in, in reading it is the attractiveness of that bracketing. It, it, it's not just intellectual, right? It's not just that modern people are so scientifically literate, you know, that they, that they can't believe in this kind of things. There's actually a certain degree of courage that, that, that seems to draw us to that kind of bracketing. There seems to be a sort of courage involved in saying, look, there's nothing beyond what you can see. There's no, there's no explanation. There's no deeper meaning. There's no ultimate resolution coming. Um, it seems to take kind of a, a courage to look into that abyss of an ultimately empty and meaningless existence and still carry on and still move forward. Um, the problem, of course, with this is that this isn't really a solution uh, to the problem that the book of Job raises. This is, this is no solution to the problem of evil. Um, this is no solution to our suffering in the world. This doesn't give us any answers. The only thing this does is tell us to stop looking for answers because there aren't any. It tells us that if we ask the question why, why do we suffer? Um, why do our loved ones suffer? All we can expect is silence. All we're being told here, we just get an admonition to keep calm and carry on, so to speak. Well, suffice it to say, the book of Job itself doesn't allow this as an option. Right? The, the answer that the book of Job is going to give to, to why, why does this happen, will have none of this about there not being a God or, or, or there not being a God who is in control. Right? This scene tells us um, that from the perspective of the book of Job, there absolutely is a God in heaven, and he absolutely is in control. Um, he is sovereign. Um, notice that you know, at, the, at, the, at the end of our passage today, um, Satan's challenge, stretch out your hand, touch all that he has, and he will curse you to his face. Uh, and the Lord permits, God allows uh, Satan uh, to go out and to strike Job. Um, Satan can't do any of this without God's permission. Um, Job won't allow us to get away with the empty but in some ways easy answer that the reason they're suffering in the world it's because no one's in control. Um, it's going to bring us right up to the hard fact that there is someone in control. There is someone in charge. Uh, and yet, they're still suffering.
Now that, of course, pushes us towards the second of the two challenges that this passage would, would raise for us. Um, and the second of the two challenges, the one that Satan directly wants to raise um, in our hearts and even with God himself. I said before that his title means the adversary or the accuser. And one thing that we notice whenever we see Satan in Scripture, he's generally accusing. The primary target of his accusations always, always is God. Even when he's coming at us and accusing us of sin, implicit in his accusations always is an accusation against God. The accusation that we are sinful is implicitly an accusation that God can't do anything about that. That because we're sinful, because we're so bad, therefore God will turn away from us. That God, in fact, is not a forgiving God. Not a God full of steadfast love and faithfulness and mercy. Um, and that's what we're going to see here. Um, Satan isn't here to question God's existence. Satan is here raising a finger to God and saying, I know what you're really like. I know what you're really like. You're a transactional God. You're a God who only blesses people who stay on your side, but watch what happens when you take away the blessings. You're a stingy God. Let's take a look at, 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 how, he, at how he does this. Satan basically is pressing God into the horns of a dilemma, Right? He's basically saying, you know, he says, look, yes, I see Job. I see that he fears you. But why does he fear you? He says, have you not put a hedge around him? Have you not protected everything that he has? Have you not blessed all the work of his hands? One horn of the dilemma is that if God simply rewards the righteous, if God simply gives good things to those who obey him, then there's every possibility that the ones who are, who are obeying God, um, the ones who fear him or who seem to fear him, as Satan would have it, um, are only doing that in their own self-interest. But watch what happens when you take it away. He'll curse you to your face. That's one side. Of course, the other side of the dilemma is, okay, so let's suppose you don't reward the righteous. Let's suppose you just give willy-nilly blessing to some, suffering to other, then that just makes a mockery of justice altogether. Either way, either way, Satan would say, you're a failed God. Because you're either transactional or you're capricious and arbitrary. That's the dilemma um, that God, or that, that Satan is, is pressing on God. But what do we actually see? What do we actually see when we look at this conversation? The first thing I want you to notice is who is it that actually has his eyes on humanity? Who is it that's actually paying attention to people? Um, God asks Satan, where have you been? From where have you come? And he gives this really like kind of generic, vague answer, right? He says, um, from going to and fro on the earth, from walking up and down on it. He doesn't mention anything that he's seen in particular, anything that he's been doing. He's just, just out there, right? There's kind of a popular misconception. Whenever in Hollywood there are demonic forces, or there's, you know, whenever there's a, a spiritual battle of some kind and there's demonic forces, and there might be you know, angelic forces as well in Hollywood, usually it seems to be like the demonic, the forces of evil are the ones that really have their sights trained on humanity, right? They're the ones that are after us. And we're kind of hoping that God or the angels will you know, pay attention and put a stop to this. 
Um, here, it's flipped. God is the one whose sights are trained on humanity. He's the one who says, have you considered my servant Job? Um, calling him my servant is actually a term of great honor, right? You think about other people in the Bible that are called my servant, like my servant Moses, my servant David, um, the servant songs of Isaiah. Um, he even, if you notice this, he even characterizes Job as being a wise man. Did you pick up on that? Remember the definition of wisdom? that we got in Job 28. Um, when we looked at Job 28 a couple weeks ago, the last verse where it finally said what wisdom is was this, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. And that's exactly what God says about Job. Have you considered my servant Job, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? So right here in, in the heart of the wisdom literature, God's sights are trained on his servant Job, and he recognizes him as a wise man. Kind of begs the question, okay, so if, 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 if wisdom is often connected to suffering, and if Job is already a wise man, then why does all the rest of this have to happen? Hold that thought. We'll come back to that question as we, as we go along. Um, the point here... Um, is it one thing that this scene reveals? Um, Satan does not care ultimately about you. Uh, Satan's not that concerned about any one of us. Satan only enters into this conversation for one purpose, and that's to attack God, that's to accuse him. Um, we're pretty meaningless to him. It's God that has his sights trained on us. It's God, our creator. It's God, our redeemer, that actually cares, that actually has his sights uh, trained on us. Satan is accusing, Joe, uh, excuse me, accusing God um, of being of stingy transactional character. I know what you're really like. Um, it reminds me a lot of the kinds of, like the parables that Jesus would tell, where there's, there's a figure who kind of stands in for God, but he's a person of, 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 of harsh or cruel character, you know, like the judge who won't give justice until he's finally bothered enough, and then he does. Now, the point in those stories, Jesus is always saying, if you can get justice, for instance, from this kind of judge, how much more from your heavenly Father, who isn't like that, right? But the other point of some of those parables is to call us out for how we mischaracterize God, how we listen to these accusations um, that Satan would whisper in our ears. One of, one of Jesus' parables, uh, the parable of the talents, right? Um, and you remember the, the, the master gives various amounts of money to three of his servants, um, and the one that does nothing with it but just hides it away, when the master comes back and says, why'd you do that? Why didn't you at least put it in a bank and earn interest? The answer is, I knew you were a hard man. I knew you were harsh. I knew you were a harsh man. And part of the point of that parable is to call us out for our tendency to think of God as harsh, 
as hard, as demanding, um, as exacting. Last week, when Bradley talked about how, remember, when we see Job's wealth, Bradley talked about how when we see Job's wealth and we see that he's an excellent man and he's a wealthy man and yet all of this suffering is going to come, it leaves us exposed, right? We find ourselves exposed to the extent that we have wealth, to the extent that we have anything good. Um, we find ourselves exposed. What's under that? And where does that send you? These are the two, these are the two questions. And Satan here is, is really digging into these questions. Underneath that exposure, that feeling that to the extent that I have wealth, to the extent that I have family, to the extent that I have anything good in my life, I am exposed, I have a lot to lose. Underlying that is a fear that in the end, God is a hard God. He's a stingy God. He might take it from me at any moment, and I'll have nothing. Underlying that is a fear that I will lose what gives my life meaning. But where does that send you? Um, Satan's deep desire is for his accusations against God to cause you, in that moment of exposure, in that knowledge of exposure, to hide, to turn away from God, to feel like you can't really be in God's presence until you've got some kind of cover, something to lessen the exposure, some kind of protection of your own. Can you, when you feel exposed, or when you suffer loss, when you're not just exposed, but when you actually suffer loss, can you go to God with that? Can you go to him without needing to cover up, without needing protection? When everything has been stripped away, do you have an identity that can't be taken from you because it's rooted not in what you have, not in what God has given you, but in God himself, um, in his presence. If you can, then you're beginning to see what the book of Job is all about. You're beginning to see how God refuses this dilemma altogether. Because you're beginning to see The character of a God who, even when everything is stripped away, will stu still pursue us and give himself fully and without hesitation. Look at the way that God responds, um, or the way that God the way that God speaks. He's a, he's a question-asking God, right? Um, this, is, this is so often the case that God comes to us with questions. We know he's going to come to Job with questions. He initially uh, opens the conversation with Satan with a question. 
from where have you come? Um, there's always this sense of, of, of invitation. Um, and this has gone all the way back to the beginning when humanity was first exposed. Remember, right after the fall, God came asking questions. Adam, where are you? And you remember what Adam said? He said, I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid. I was stripped of everything. I was exposed, and so I hid from you. And, and you can kind of picture God, you know, he says, who told you you were naked? And it's almost as though he's, they're there in this garden, right? Everything that Adam and Eve need is, is, is provided for them. Um, all this fruit, not to mention God's own presence daily, constantly, right? Adam, who told you you were naked? Who told you that you were stripped of everything? Who told you that you were exposed? Why are you hiding? It's really interesting. Satan, the question that he asked God, does Job fear God for no reason? Um, everything that he says here is full of such half-truth and even truth. Um, he's not wrong that Job doesn't fear God for nothing, that there's a reason that Job fears God. He's not wrong that God has put a hedge around him, that he has blessed the work of his hands. And so he challenges God um, to do what God won't do, to go against his own character, to strike out against his creation. God won't do that, but God will permit Satan to do it. He will permit Satan um, to strike what he has. And he says, behold, he's, he's in your hand. What we're going to see over the course of these chapters is how even as Job is stripped of all that he has, and then there's a second round of this conversation um, in which God will allow Satan not only to strike Job's wealth, but even his health. Have to say, spare his life, um, but he even allows Satan to strike against, against Job's health. But in all of that, even if Satan stretches out his hand against Job, God is going to keep stretching out toward Job with himself. Even if wealth or health is taken away, he's going to give him himself. The amazing thing um, is that this moves Job towards repentance. That, that, that in the end, this answers his questions. That when he's confronted with God, you know, when, he, when he gets the audience that he wants, when God addresses him, as we've said, in the second person, this moves Job to repentance. It's amazing to me because of how much less Job got to see than of what we've seen. I mean, let me ask you how, do you, how do you know that you can trust this God? How do you know um, that in your moments of exposure, that in your moments of loss, you can go to him and you'll find him faithful, that you'll find him supplying you with his presence? The answer for us is that we've seen, much more than Job did, the lengths 
to which God is willing to go to pursue us. That we've seen what he's willing to give. The next, well, one of, one of the next conversations that we see Satan have, um, I suppose the next one that we see him have with, with God is when he tempts Jesus in the wilderness, right? Um, and you remember, he kind of brings these same accusations against God, this time not in the form of questions, but just with assertions, right? If you're really the son of God, then you can feed yourself. You can equip yourself with power. Uh, you could throw yourself off this mountain and angels would catch you, right? If you're really the son of God, um, then, then you could do these things. In other words, the temptations all come in the form of don't rely on God to take care of you. Don't wait on your father to provide for you in this wilderness. Take care of yourself. Cover yourself. You can do it. You know who you are. And Jesus refuses. Where the first Adam failed in the garden, Jesus succeeds in the wilderness. Adam felt himself exposed, stripped of everything in the middle of a garden. Jesus is in the wilderness and yet knows that he has everything. Because he does what Psalm 78 says, right? Jesus is the one who sets his hope on his father, doesn't forget the works of his father, and keeps his commandments. And that, and that keeping of his commandments, that obedience that that motivated in Jesus, that fear of the Lord, dare I say, this is where Trinitarian theology gets really mind-bending, right? That fear of the Lord that Jesus exhibits, the obedience that that elicits from him, it leads him all the way to the cross, where he is willing to give up everything. You and I, looking at the cross, see exactly how far God is willing to go to pursue us. You and I get to see that it's actually, in the end, God who empties himself, that it is God's Son, Jesus, who is stripped naked, that it's him who is exposed for you, for me, in our place. And this is the thing, I think, that Satan, the adversary, the accuser, just couldn't conceive of. He couldn't conceive of a God that would go to those kinds of lengths. He pointed this finger at God and said, I know what you're like, because he thought that God was like him. The way we sometimes think that God is like us. I think I've told this story before um, of um, my friend Manny. Manny was an elder uh, that I had the privilege to train for our Jamaica Plain congregation. Um, he was about 70 years old, you know, grew up in Roxbury, um, you know, one of the true native Bostonians that I had the pleasure to, to train as an elder uh, for, this, for this church. Um, and I remember in his, in his uh, exam, in his elder exam for the Bible section, um, his pastor, Logan, who was one of the, one of the people doing the examination, said, Manny, why don't you tell him what you've been learning about in the book of Job? Manny had been reading the book of Job. And Manny turned to me, and he just said, all of my problems come from thinking that God is like me. God's not like me. He's holy. He's different. When people 
do things to me, I get angry and I want vengeance. I want to strike back. And so I think that if I'm suffering, it must be because God is angry at me, that he's taking vengeance on me. But what I've been learning from the book of Job is that God is not like me. He's completely different. He's not a hard God. He's not a harsh God. He's not stingy. I think the way that Satan understood it was a little bit like the end of Narnia, right? Or the end of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, I should say, um, which is only the first book. The first, not the second, for those that have the different editions. First book. Um, right? At the end of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's this deep magic that says that every traitor belongs to the White Witch, this great adversary, this great accuser. Right? Every traitor belongs to her. But what she doesn't know is the deeper magic. She doesn't know the deeper magic that says that if a willing, innocent subject would sacrifice himself, then time itself works backward. Death itself gets undone. This accuser can't conceive of who God really is. Um, but as we go to this table, he's showing us again and again. He's spreading out this table in the wilderness. At a time when you might be feeling at your most exposed, when you might be feeling at your driest, at the time when you might be suffering actual loss, there's an opportunity right now, right now, for us to go to him to be fed. Not to try to cover ourselves but to simply admit our need of him. This is this great opportunity that we're given every week. Before we come to this table, let's pray together and give thanks.